FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Uh, greetings, I'm Dr. Juan Bowen. Uh, I'm an internist and the uh, director of the Marfan and uh, Thoracic Aortic Clinic at the Mayo Clinic. This is an interdisciplinary clinic. Uh, we see patients with the Marfan syndrome-related uh, disorders, uh, and we have uh, medical geneticists, uh, cardiologists, uh, and participate in regular conferences with vascular radiologists and other specialists. And an important group are our cardiovascular surgeons. Today we'll be discussing aortic and endovascular surgery with my colleague, Dr. Alberto Pocatino, who specializes in these procedures. How are you, Alberto? Very good. Uh, we have, I have a couple of questions uh, to start off with, and I guess uh, the first question would be, what types of aortic operations are done here at Mayo on the thoracic aorta? Well, we were able to offer uh, the full spectrum of uh, aortic surgical reparative procedure here, and uh, you know you can look at anatomically starting at the aortic root. Uh, the aortic root can be uh, dilated, uh, and so aneurysmal replacement of the aortic root can be done either with aortic valve replacement if the aortic valve is affected, or with what's what we call valve sparing root replacement. Um, many of the patients that uh, come in with uh, aortic root dilatation will have valvular disease, the most common group of which is bicuspic aortic valve patients. And while occasionally some of their valves can be spared, the majority of the, pa of the patient with bicuspid valve do require concomitant valve replacement, and uh, that can be done with a full root replacement, either with a mechanical or tissue valve. As you go above the aortic root, uh, a lot of patients may present with ascending aortic aneurysm. Many of those patients may be older and do not have root pathology per se. Uh, some of those patients may have uh, uh, hypertension-related dilatation of the ascending aorta. And the majority of those do not require full root replacement or, for that matter, valve replacement. But obviously, everything has to be individualized there. The next uh, uh, big component of uh, aortic uh, surgical intervention is the aortic arch. Uh, it just so happens that I would say that the great majority, maybe 80 to 90 percent of patients that present with ascending aortic aneurysm, the aneurysm will tend to extend into at least the proximal aortic arch. So many of those patients require, as part of their treatment, uh, what we might call hemi-arch replacement, meaning an open approach to the aortic arch where the majority of the arch is replaced from the front. Then there are the, the class of patients that have more of a descending uh, thoracic uh, uh, aortic aneurysm with or without involvement of the arch. So many of those patients can be uh, repaired either in an open fashion or one of the development of, of the last uh, five to 10 years has been the introduction of endovascular treatment uh, which at the present time is primarily uh, limited to the descending thoracic aorta. Um, and uh, many of the dis disorders that affect the descending thoracic aorta extend to the abdominal aorta. Uh, and that's where the, uh, our vascular colleague come in and work with us uh, in the operating room together most of the time to deal with the disease that can go from the aortic arch all the way to the iliac bifurcation, 
obviously different permutation, different diseases may be uh, involving different sections of the thoracic aorta. So, so we have the full spectrum of, uh, of uh, surgical intervention available to address any uh, uh, portion of the aorta in, in both open as well as uh, endovascular uh, treatment as uh, appropriate for individual patients. So when I think of uh, patients uh, with thoracic aortic disease, it, it's a big spectrum, uh, which includes younger people with uh, genetically driven uh, aneurysms, all the way to uh, older patients where the genetic uh, mechanisms are less important, and these patients have atherosclerosis and associated risk factors. But as a general rule, what would you say about how safe it is to operate on the thoracic aorta in these various groups? And could you give us some examples of lower risk procedures and also some examples of higher risk procedures? Um, clearly, there is a very wide spectrum of, uh, of diseases and age, age groups. Uh, you can kind of generally classify as genetically driven aneurysm most of those patients are young, and most of those patients tend to be low-risk patients in terms of uh, our ability to fix their aneurysm uh, with, uh, with low morbidity and mortality. So the classic example is the Marfan dilated root uh, and other less defined but similar genetically uh, driven root aneurysm. So a patient in that category uh, nowadays, if operated electively, probably carries a, a mortality risk in the 2% range uh, for, a, say, valve-sparing root replacement or even a full root replacement, say, in a bicuspid aortic valve patient. Um, and they have minimal neurologic uh, risk. Uh, you know, those are the big issues that we always worry about. Obviously, mortality is any, as well as any neurologic deficit that may come from having to have uh, a uh, cardiac pulmonary bypass run to fix their aneurysm. So those are the low-risk patients. Then clearly, the opposite extremes is the um, vascular path who has smoked most of their life and develops a descending thoracic aortic aneurysm. Often those patients have vascular disease affecting their carotid, their coronary arteries, their uh, vascular periphery. They often have emphysema, so their risk profile is very different. And that's where the endovascular treatment plays a major role uh, to minimize the risk of the procedure and try to address their abnormal, abnormal you know, dilated aorta, uh, trying to, to avoid the, the, the trauma of a large uh, procedure. And again, many of those patients have lung disease related to smoking, which is often is the etiology that led to their aneurysm. Uh, so, so that's where the advances of endovascular uh, treatment has made a big, big difference in being able to offer uh, very sophisticated repair that until recently we couldn't offer with uh, low enough risk uh, profile. Well, when we see people with a dilated or proximal aortas, these patients, uh, you mentioned the Marfan syndrome, a lot of them will have the Marfan syndrome. Some will have other uh, conditions. You also mentioned the bicuspid aortic valve uh, aortopathy related aneurysms. And it, and is there a general number that we can use for surgical referral, or do these subgroups have a different uh, thresholds for when they should have elective prophylactic repairs of the ascending aorta? It's a very good question. Uh, one of the issues ultimately is the 
balance between the risk of the procedure that we have available as well as the risk of the disease. And one of the good news is that the procedure that we're performing today uh, have uh, improved and the, the risk profile of what we offer has become better and better. And uh, some of the updated uh, indication for surgical intervention reflect that, uh, as well as reflect our better understanding of what the risk of the disease uh, can be. Um, specifically, when we look at a bicuspid aortic valve aortopathy, um, because the operation has become uh, quite low risk, we have uh, uh, now established uh, the maximum diameter at which we would offer surgery at five centimeters. Um, now that assumes that the aortic valve is not significantly affected. So uh, in, in that group of patients, you have to look at both factors. Sometimes uh, you, you intervene because of the valve is the main driving force, and you certainly will address the aorta at the same time. Um, now, if a patient has a genetically determined aortopathy, again, a classic case would be Marfan, but there are other less common and less completely understood, like Lois Dietz uh, syndrome. Our criteria has now uh, moved down to about four and a half centimeter in maximum diameter, assuming there are no other uh, risk factors that play a role. And uh, those patients, uh, we have learned uh, more recently that they, their disease is a lot more aggressive, and uh, together with our ability to operate on this patient with a relatively low risk, 4.5 makes sense. Uh, and of course, if there is a detected change in size, the the that in the patient who has been followed for some period of time, the the, the rapidity of the growth is also important, especially in genetically determined uh, aortopathy. I know from our perspective, uh, a few years ago, before the Lois Dietz syndrome was described, uh, and when genetic testing was more expensive than it is now, uh, we had a, uh, we tested a fewer patients for genetically driven mechanisms because it wasn't that clear that there were subgroups that should be operated upon at uh, different uh, thresholds. But now, of course, we realize that some of these syndromes are more dangerous than others, and also genetic testing has been, uh, is now cheaper, and it's more widely available. So I appreciate uh, your answer, and it does look like we really should try to categorize our patients as carefully as we can uh, for those reasons. Now, uh, aortic valve uh, sparing, valve sparing operations are now increasingly done, I think they've been done for perhaps 10 to 15 years. Uh, is there a clear best procedure of the several that have been uh, described? And when those are done, how durable are these operations? So the accepted uh, uh, valve sparing operation that most uh, centers would propose is what, what we would call the uh, David Five variation of the um, reimplantation technique, uh, you know, in, to put it plainly, the the valve is inserted inside a Dacron graft, um, so that the annular level, or I should say, the subannular level of the uh, aortic valve is completely enclosed by Dacron graft, thus preventing late dilatation. A number of versions had been proposed prior to that which did not completely uh, 
secured the subannular component of the left ventricular outflow tract, and some of those operations did fail uh, because of uh, persistent annular dilatation uh, late after the, the procedure was done. So most of, most of us that do that operation uh, will use that um, reimplantation technique. Now, I mean, the results have been quite, quite good, uh, and uh, I often counsel patients that we have reasonable expectation that at 10 years, most patients with a tri-leaflet valve will have good valve uh, outcomes. I must say that the present variation uh, did not become as popular as it is today for more than 10 years, so that we do not have long-term data that goes beyond 10 years that, that is sort of uh, widely accepted. So um, I, I do counsel patients that while we think that it will last even more than 10 years, the data out there is only about that old. Um, and at least at this point, we have confidence that it probably lasts uh, uh, potentially more, but it just we just need to wait and see to confirm that that's indeed the case. So, so far, uh, encouraging results with these operations and certainly a good alternative for the particularly the younger patient or the person who may want to avoid anticoagulation. Now, aside from the valve sparing procedures, are there are other recent important advances in surgery on the thoracic aorta? I mean, clearly, uh, in the last decade, endovascular treatment ha has seen uh, uh, significant advances. Uh, you know, we, we started uh, about 10 years ago in treating uh, patients that were not candidate for any open operation, and, and the, the number of techniques as well as the number of technologies have been developed to, to adjust to uh, aneurysmal disease, and, and more recently with... Uh, um, introduction of stent graft technology in management of type B dissection uh, with good results. Uh, and I think in the near future, we will see the technology improve further and being applied uh, more proximally. I mean, clearly, there are patients where uh, involving involvement of the aortic arch from the descending thoracic aorta needs to be addressed, and uh, the endovascular techniques are becoming uh, more available. Uh, the other patient that will benefit from endovascular treatment is the atherosclerotic thoracoabdominal aneurysm. Again, going back to what I mentioned earlier, many of these patients have multiple medical problems, and a open thoracoabdominal aortic replacement operation is a very morbid operation. So endovascular techniques will certainly help that group of patients significantly, and that technology is still in evolution but will develop to replace a large portion of, of those open operations. Well, that's been very, very uh, informative, and uh, I think we're just about out of time. So thanks, Alberto, for these great surgical insights, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Mayo Clinic Talks. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Visit theheart.org to find out more.